Welcome back to Superheroes of Science. Joining us today, we have Andrew Flax. Andrew is an assistant professor of anthropology at Purdue University. So welcome. Hi, good to be here. Good morning or afternoon, whatever it is. I don't even know. Um, <laughs> I know where it is and where I am now. But um, it's good to see you again. So yes. we've collaborated with you previously on some some uh, different things on the campus, AP Fridays, things like that. Mm -hmm. I think after that, I think I told you before that I went home and told my wife how excited I was, and I told her about the things that you taught us, uh, and she was so excited, and she had told me that it, when I told her we were going to interview you, that, you know, that uh, well, she said she can't stop thinking. Every time she wants to throw an apple core out the window, she stops <laughs> and thinks about some of the things that you've said, and so uh, it's, I'm excited about that. Excited. Yeah, that's good. Grow your orchard out there. You're going to have a lot of happy bees, and... You're going to be part of a long line of people all the way back to Kazakhstan with the first apples going across the Silk Road. So you're part of a, a nice, proud history. Oh, there you go. I like <laughs> but um, I guess that let's break down your title first, because uh, oof, when I think of, all right, so uh, assistant professor of anthropology, when I think of anthropology, the first thing I'm going to think of is, oh, well, that's someone who just studies, studies those old skulls and uh, how people developed over in time years ago. And so uh, is, is, is that a misconception or is it legit? No, that's legit. That's all part of the mix. Uh, when we talk about anthropology, usually we break it down into four areas. And so what you were talking about has a lot to do with biological anthropology. So that's the study of our human biology. And so that includes how we look, our physical and our genetic variation, including like differences in our skulls, um, stuff that we can see, the, the obvious kinds of biological variation that we have between us and within us as human beings. Um, that includes some stuff that might be easily seen from the street, like the, the, how much skin reflectance we have, how dark our skin color is, how much melanin we're, we're producing, our eye color, um, our hair type, some of these things that might map onto race, some of these things that we wouldn't normally map onto race, like how long my fingers are, how wide my nose is, um, the, the relative ratios of my legs to my arms, these things that we wouldn't normally characterize that way, whether or not I got a hitchhiker's thumb, uh, how much hair we all have, relatively speaking, to one another. Uh, yeah, I'm getting there. I'm getting there as well. Some, we also would talk about biological variation that we can't see quite so easily. Like maybe I process oxygen a little bit more efficiently, or maybe you process oxygen a little bit more efficiently than me. Maybe I'm really good with lactose and you're not. Like I can drink all the milk I want. Uh, maybe I've got a, a slight heart palpitation or my liver processes alcohol really well, or my spine's a little bit crooked. Um, these are things that we couldn't really like normally see, but they're just as much a part of that biological variation that we would think about um, when we're being a biological anthropologist. It includes things like evolution, the trajectory and diversification of our species, which is of course really important and also really related to these questions about human variation when we think about the human species. I mean, we are an astoundingly diverse group mammal wise when we look across each other we can see all kinds of differences and yet when we look at that on the genetic level we're actually incredibly similar 
given that we're dispersed on seven continents, some of us from Purdue have left the earth and gone to the moon. We've gone to the bottom of the oceans. And yet between me and any other human being on earth, there's about as third, uh, a third as much genetic diversity as there is, say, between a white-tailed deer from North Carolina and a white-tailed deer from where I grew up in Pennsylvania. So for all these things that we might look at and see as important, there's actually relatively little biological variation, genetic variation between humans. And that speaks to our relatively recent uh, exodus out of, of Africa around perhaps uh, in a couple of waves, 300,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, another wave, 50,000 years ago, uh, that all together created our, our large dispersion. And of course, that biological variation that we now see between and within different populations of human. All of that is the biological story of, you know, really who we are and where we came from and what it means to be human. Biological anthropologists will also look to our closely related primate cousins, monkeys and apes, to try and understand a little bit more about the context of our human evolution and what it is to not just be a human, but to be a primate. What are these things that we have all together? Uh, and so there's important questions about conservation and about questions about evolution because it's likely that we can look to our, our primate cousins for some hints about that evolutionary moment when we diverged from what would then become chimpanzees or what would then become bonobo monkeys or, or apes rather, what would then become these different apes and monkeys that we would see. And so here at Purdue, we've got people who study uh, monkey foraging and conservation issues and how people and apes and monkeys interact together. So all of that's within that, just that one quarter of it, of biological anthropology. Then we've got people who study language. Language is this incredibly important thing that humans do, and there's a whole lot of meaning that we convey through our speech, and not just our speech, but also the songs that we sing, and the gestures that we make, and the written elements that we leave around to, to one another. There's a whole world of symbolic thought uh, that is encoded through these things. We might include visual art into this as one of these deep things that really makes us human. Then we can talk about our material record, and that would be archaeology, the third of these four fields, where we're really interested in material objects, the stuff that we leave behind, and the kinds of stories that we can tell about these material things. I might know an awful lot about, say, Stephen and Sarah, if I went through your trash. I could tell what kind of person you are. I could tell a little bit about what kinds of economies you're part of. Are you throwing away stuff that's really produced just at your house? Or are you getting things from all over the world? And it's probably a little bit of a mixture of both. I might look at things that might seem a little bit less obvious to understand how people lived in the past, like the sedimentation of the earth around you to see how human activity changed the literal earth that we stand on. I might look to, we were talking about apples a moment ago, right? I might look to see if there's any mature apples in your area. Apples come from Central Asia. If they're here in Indiana, someone put them there. And we might know if, if there's a bit of a story behind that to see some larger pattern of human movement or exchange that would put these apples here so out of place in a place like Indiana. Uh, archaeologists tend to think on pretty big timescales, much like biological anthropologists, because we're 
you think about evolution and landscape changes, and these aren't things that happen in our lifetime. These are things that happen over many, many different generations. Uh, and then, of course, there's me, cultural anthropologists, people who look at the everyday things that living people all around the world make meaningful and do in their daily lives. So cultural anthropologists look to understand the symbols and meanings and everyday importance that we give to all kinds of stuff that we do. Personally, I study food and agriculture. And so I look a lot at that human element of why it is people make the decisions that they make or how we might integrate new technologies or why it is that someone wants to be in such a difficult line of work like farming in the first place and how we might really double down on that if we want to support America's farmers or farmers anywhere else in the world and really understand why it is that people are doing what they're doing. So there's, there's these four parts of it that really come together to essentially tell the story of the human experience across space and time. If it's people stuff, it's, there's anthropologists involved. <laughs> I like it. It's just people stuff. <laughs> that's a great definition too. I love that. I feel like that's very um, inclusive of all the areas. That was, that was really good. Oh, thanks. What, what's astounding is that there is so much variation across space and time in what it means to be human and what stuff humans do, uh, which is great for me because I like having this kind of job security. I'll be able to study things forever. Uh, but it also helps us kind of shake loose and get a little bit of perspective. These things that seem unchangeable, these rules of, of our life, the norms that we take with us, uh, are they've got a history, all of them. Uh, and in some cases, they're relatively recent developments. They're not things that have been with us since the beginning of time. They might be only a couple of hundred years old, which gives us an opportunity to rethink things that we might be really invested in changing. Uh, racism isn't all that old. As we think of that concept, racism is something that's only a couple of hundred years old because the concept of race as we think about it in the year 2020 is only a couple of hundred years old. Now there've been prejudices of different kinds, but if we can shake our heads a little bit loose from this really particular thing that's so important in basically every aspect of American life right now, then we got some great perspectives to understand why we have issues with race that we do and how we might more productively change them because it's not something that's immutable. It's something that's really historically relatively recent. And that means that we can come up with better ways of dealing with people who have diverse experiences, perspectives, and histories of migration. No, oh, that's, that's a very enlightened way of looking at it that most people would, including myself, would not have fun. Yeah. I like that. That's... I never thought about it being only a couple hundred years old, races. I assumed it's been, I don't know, since the beginning of time. I mean, it's just kind of one of those things you assume has always been there. And so that's, that's really amazing. That we have, of course, all kinds of, you know, documentations of difference. You go all the way back to the ancient Greeks, uh, and there was this writer Herodotus who was writing these histories of uh, what he thought was just normal life, which was ancient Greek life, and all of these crazy other people that he was meeting, especially the Persians and the Egyptians who lived very differently. And he was documenting these things, and Herodotus was like a rich Greek guy, uh, and most of the people that he was writing about also happened to be men, not a whole lot of women in Herodotus' stories. Were there women in the past? Yes, 
I think that we can very confidently say that there were women in the past. Uh, but Herodotus just wasn't writing too much about them. Were all of Herodotus's stories true? No. He describes these like furry ant creatures that are moving around in, in these great deserts. Um, do the Persians come off particularly well in Herodotus's stories? No. Greece was at war with Persia. It's pretty unlikely that like a member of Greek's elite was going to say, our enemies are terrific. They're just way better than us in every way. We have these stories of prejudice, but it's not framed in the same way. It's not talked about in the same way that we might think about race today. These people looked fairly similar. Greece had a lot of different looking people in it. This was a crossroads in the Mediterranean with people from Africa, Asia, and Europe uh, mixing in and having a lot of genetic and physical diversity. This concept of uh, race as we experience it, say, in the United States, is really this product of a particular economic and political and historical moment of the colonization uh, by European powers, forced migration, slavery, kidnapping uh, of peoples from Africa, and seizure, trade, exchange uh, of lands uh, between native and indigenous peoples in North America. And that's just one history. You can go to Japan, race looks very different, different sorts of histories, different kinds of stories about race. Scandinavia, race is different. You go to Brazil, race is different. Brazil has, uh, in, in one recent census, had, I think it was close to 50 or 60 different racial categories. Our current census has got like, what, 10 perhaps? And you can mark your own. That doesn't mean that like Brazil's right and we're wrong. That means that this is a social category. That means that it's a product of history. It's not a natural scientific law. It's something that varies across space and time. And with a little bit of perspective, we can understand why or why not we might be invested in these particular categories and what consequences they have. That real, okay, what next kind of question that we do with all this, with all this knowledge that we have. The social categories might be made up, but there's a lot of biological variation that we can obviously see between us. And so that gives us an opportunity to say, yes, humans are different. Are they different? Or are these differences uh, important in the ways that we call race in Indiana in the year 2020? And is that the only way to think about it? Of course not. So what sort of opportunities do we now have to move towards something more productive? move towards something more just, move towards a society that can recognize differences without having disadvantages. And that's a really productive conversation to have, but it's one that we can't have if we don't recognize those histories there. And so all that I was just talking about here, we've got linguistic categories of how do we understand groupings of people. We've got archaeological records that help us understand what life was like at these moments of contact. We've, and, and these material records of um, just literal stuff that people had in the homes where they lived. We've got biological categories where we're keeping track of genetic and physical variation in our species. And we've got cultural categories at the center of it where we're understanding not just how we think about this world, how all that comes together to make it seem like, oh, this is just the normal way to live. Uh, but also some of the consequences of that for our larger social, political, economic lives. Well, I like that. It, it's, it seems like everything you mentioned is culturally based. I mean, it's a, a cultural construct, I should say. 
cultural uh, culture is really at the center of what anthropology is all about because again, it's human stuff. And one of the big things that humans do is we create culture and meaningful things in our lives. Now we might use a word like culture and think of like high art and Mozart and Haydn and really beautiful paintings. Um, that might be one definition of culture, the material products that we create or beautiful artistic things that we have around us and value. But culture is also the language that we're speaking now. Uh, it's the clothes that we're wearing and the kinds of people that we're trying to convey. You know, I'm, I put on my, uh, my professorly flannel. I've got my big beard. We're trying to, I've got a cultivating a kind of identity here. You can see my plants in the background. Uh, culture is also, it's normal that I think, you know, I should live in a house. It's normal that I think students should come to classes and we should get degrees. All of these things uh, that make our lives meaningful, that give structure to our society, that make the rules of our society spoken or unspoken normal, that's culture. And so that's going to be at the basis of really any understanding of what it is to be human because it's at the core of how we organize ourselves. Wow. I think um, with today's uh, equity and diversity being in the forefront of the news and conversations and things that are happening around the world around us, I think uh, this is probably a perspective most people need to stop step back and look at um, culturally how did we get to that point and, and, and why why do some people believe some way within their culture uh, i think maybe we would be a little bit more open in society if we had a bigger picture i mean i, I certainly hope so uh, feel free to to tell everyone you know to come ahead and take these classes one of the things that i do at purdue here is i teach um, anthropology 100 which is introduction to everything uh, the class is called being human and so in this class, we basically discuss all these four fields that I was just saying and how all of that's come together to understand really big questions like who are we and where do we come from or how do we feed the world, something important to my own particular research interests. How do we communicate across difference? Where are we going? How do we deal with global change? We live in a world that is defined by change, even though change can seem really scary, whether that's social change or much bigger climactic change, something that would affect the globe as we know it. Uh, our human societies have really flourished. Uh, population's grown a lot. We've had a big impact on the earth, especially in the last 10,000 years. But on geologic time, that 10,000 year period that we're living in, what uh, geologists would call the Holocene, is pretty weird because it's stable and it's fairly warm and there's not a whole lot of climactic fluctuation. Uh, we had a little ice age uh, about four or 500 years ago, and that was a huge scar across a lot of dense societies around the earth. That was a very difficult time. And that was something that was well within our Holocene stability range. If you look back through the history of the earth, our species evolved through the Pleistocene ice age era. Anatomically modern humans, humans that if we dressed them up like you and me and put them on the bus, you really wouldn't be able to tell that anything was different. They've been around for around 300,000 years. So most of that time has not been in this stable period that we associate, say, 
uh, with domestication of plants and animals, um, with the exception of wolves into dogs. Most of that time has been in a, a far wilder climactic period, but we weren't as dense as populations. And we certainly didn't have the kinds of organizations of people and landscapes around us that we have today. If we're going back into a period of climactic fluctuation, a whole lot of the world's going to have to change. But luckily, there's a lot of smart people out there that hopefully can, can come together. First, we need to understand how all of us have an impact on the earth. And if we want to have some impact on it going forward, the past is a good place to look for that kind of thing.